It's already winter here in Chicago, and we've just witnessed a huge storm, so it's delightfully gray and gloomy, a perfect reading day, and just how I like it. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. It is I, your long-gone host, your, who has returned from a very severe cold this winter, and who is delighted to have you on one of our most reviewed, most seen episodes on reading Dickens. This is an episode I produced way back in the dawn of the podcast, and I hope that you all classic listeners out there remember this episode, cherish this episode. We are going to hear some throwback intros from the podcast of yore. I think this was maybe 2019 or thereabouts when I redid this episode, and you will hear our old intro for Diddy and Hawthorne and the In-Between, which was our old name before we changed it to the book album. So this is, again, a time capsule of an episode, but the information within it does bear true to this day. I think there's a really poignant and really detailed analysis of what it's like as a reader to read Dickens, and I think it does really help our listeners as we dive into this season of December Dickens, which will most likely this year and into next year move through December and into January. The one thing that I will emphasize and perhaps add after reviewing this episode is that I think that something really important for reading Dickens is patience. Without patience, there's not going to be any sort of engagement with the text. There's not going to be even the ability to finish a full text by Dickens. Especially during the December Dickens season, we read two to four to sometimes six Dickens novels in a season. And that takes immense patience. It's very time intensive. Uh, for example, finishing our first book that we'll review on this on the series on the show, Nicholas Nickleby, it took me a month to read. <laughs> and some of it is literally just that really getting into Dickens, getting into his prose, getting into what it's like to read Dickens for that first time, maybe your first time back in a year for some of us. So Really, patience is such a virtue here with regard to reading Dickens. Now, without further ado, let's listen to this wonderfully classic retro episode of the show, the book album on reading Dickens. Hello and welcome to Diddy and Hawthorne in the In-Between, or DH&I. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens, and you're listening to our podcast about the relevance of literature in the 21st century. Now bookmark that book, and let's begin. Hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today's episode, I'm so excited for you all. This is a remake of our On Reading Dickens episode. If you are a true podcast classic OG listener, you will know that I have published this episode, episode 14, 
twice already, but I am remaking it for this year with new tips. I'm expounding upon a lot and I'm going to definitely increase the production value of this episode just because I find it so valuable and so many of you guys find it so valuable every single year. We are going to delve, of course, into a topic that is not discussed nearly enough or with nearly enough depth. How to read novels by Charles Dickens or any other convoluted, dense, old English author for that matter. And don't worry, this isn't going to be one of those, well, just casually pick it up at the bookstore, you know how to read, kinds of things. These are tangible tips that I and other bibliophiles use to read Dickens and actually understand it. Edition. The first thing that needs to be thought about as far as older classics goes is the edition. Unlike with newer books, there's likely going to be a range of options for you as far as covers and different introductions and conclusions go, so I'd recommend being intentional about which one you buy. The most popular brands that I know of, for Dickens in particular since he was an English author, are Barnes & Noble Classics and Penguin Classics. Starting with Barnes & Noble Classics, this is the one I'm choosing for Bleak House in particular for this year. It's known for being a really tremendous and dense novel, and it's also the type I'm used to for the classics, uh, which will be a good help because I'm used to reading all of the footnotes and endnotes in the Barnes & Noble Classics style. They have great thorough footnotes, some noted edits on the original English, for example, there's a lot of dialect uses in these kinds of novels, and having just a quick footnote or just a quick mention of, oh, here's what this word should mean, or maybe this is a regional word for this, that proves tremendously helpful, and you often don't have to flip to the back of the book, they're right on the bottom for you. These are super helpful for people who may not understand English colloquialisms or traditions of words as well, or again, need help with these dialects or accents. Wuthering Heights, for example, has this character who speaks Old English slash a highly dialectical accent, and I literally cannot understand a word written on the page, maybe one here or there, but the footnotes are a tremendous help for that. Penguin Classics. This is the one I chose for Oliver Twist when I read that two years ago. Penguin is an English company based mostly in Europe. They have some American editions that make their way over, but a lot of their publishing techniques and practices are the European standard, not the American standard. That's important for if you are used to a certain style or edit of a book. You might not get that with some of these. Um, they're based in Europe, so I figured experience-wise I could gain a lot from some Penguin editions of Dickens. What I do like about Penguin editions in retrospect is that there are pictures every so often, so as you're reading it's sort of like a bedtime story, even though it's ridiculously dense and complicated. You get this amazing visual footnote thing that might be had in other editions, maybe, um, but it's really great just to have. What these editions don't have is all of that footnote action that may be held in other editions, so I do have to periodically look things up in order to understand 
made your plot points or made your character arcs better. Like I alluded to before, this is likely because the typical Penguin audience may be able to understand a bit more than what the Barnes & Noble audience is expected to, especially since a lot of people may speak the regional dialects that are found in some of these works. Anywho, to sum this up, in terms of additions, usually what you need to think about is whether you want additions like footnotes, pictures, a larger font size, a particular book size, particular introduction, etc. etc. Introductions are very important to me, as you'll see. And I might mention at the end here that I have left some additions out of this consideration. If you have a specific edition that you really like to use, please do by all means. Honestly, a familiarity with the edition will help you a lot more than some of the perks. I know that, for example, the Folio Society might have some added perks for some listeners. They have really beautiful illustrations that they've integrated into the book as well. They do a lot of really great work with literature, so I would trust them. I would also maybe look at the Norton Critical Edition if you are more intellectual or academic with the way that you approach things and you want more bonus materials at the front and back of the novel. I love their editions for authors like Faulkner, authors like James Joyce. Reading the introduction. I am obsessed with introductions. We all know this, but Reading the introduction, especially if you are new to the author or the style or the plot of the work, introductions are there to ground you and give you food for thought before the start of the novel. Yes, there are spoilers that you have to deal with, but the point is not being surprised that Pip is a nickname for Philip Pirrup in Great Expectations or that Oliver eventually finds family members in Oliver Twist. It's a way to acquaint yourself with the bare bones of an extraordinarily and notoriously, I might add, for Dickens at least, difficult plot so that you have some hope of being able to identify the plot arc when you get in the pages and in the weeds. I also find that going back to the introduction after you've read the novel is extremely helpful for me. It allows me to pick up on things that I might have missed in that reading of the novel or might have not focused on to as great of an extent as maybe this character or that trait or that event. And it also allows me to get a broader scope of the novel before I begin. Oftentimes introductions will talk about where this work falls in the greater arc of work that the author has. So in Great Expectations, for example, the introduction talks a lot about Great Expectations in comparison with Dickens' other late work novels, like Oliver Twist, for example, and that helps you ground yourself really well before you start off in Pip Land. Compartmentalize. Now you have the perfect edition in your hand, you are ready to sit on the couch and read, you've already read the introduction, <laughs> great. A side note before I get to the next tip is that I would recommend that you have little to no distractions present while you're reading. Maybe you are the person that can drown anything under the sun out, including iPhone pings and YouTube, 
but I am not. And if your brain is trying to process a Dickensian sentence, and I'm going to read one for you in a minute, so hold your hats, then you're going to want to help yourself out as much as possible beforehand. Alright, now on to the analysis here. One of the most important skills to learn when reading in general is the ability to compartmentalize individual sentences without losing track of the whole. This means that setting, characters, and action should all be kept track of as you're delving into these very complex sentences. Dickens, in particular, has a very distinctive way of introducing setting, and even on inconsequential settings usually get sentences of their own, so we usually don't have to worry too much about that point, unless that is you suddenly find yourself reading about a dusty floorboard when you thought that Oliver was still talking about his dog. Been there, done that. Characters in Dickens are important because it's almost like he prides himself on how many different names he can assign to each one and different traits he can assign to each one, making it pretty confusing at points. I remember a time when Oliver Twist when a person named Barney is introduced and I went on for several pages thinking that Barney was a dog. If you have trouble with this aspect in particular, I would say that Dickens is usually quite clear with gender pronouns and with animal versus person pronouns. Sometimes the animal versus person thing gets twisted, so for instance, using the example from earlier, Barney curls up, quote unquote, to sleep, etc, etc, you get the point. Action is probably the most important marker of the three in this section. For Dickens, unless the sentence occurs in a particularly dramatic spot in the novel, action is going to come pretty late in the sentence, and it's also going to be incredibly vital to your understanding of what is going on. This is best explained with a larger picture example, so I'll get into the long sentence I promised a minute ago. An example from Oliver Twist. As the lady had stated her intention of screaming, of course she would have screamed at this additional boldness, but that the exertion was rendered unnecessary by a hasty knocking at the door, which was no sooner heard than Mr. Bumble darted with much agility to the wine bottles and began dusting them with great violence while the matron sharply demanded who was there. In the larger picture, Dickens has decided to write a seemingly random chapter in the second part about the matron and the beetle, who are two individuals involved in Oliver's orphanic upbringing and subsequent adoption, quote-unquote, in his hometown. In this close-up, the beetle has made a move, romantically, on the matron, which is to say they've just kissed? And that's a big no-no in 1800s Britain without rings on both fingers. Keeping this in mind, we know that the setting is in the matron's house. This was established earlier. If you aren't sure when this passage rolls around, rest assured Dickens usually reiterates the setting at certain points throughout the scene, as he will do when the matron exits this scene. In terms of character, the first part of the sentence is about the matron, also referred to as the lady and she in the passage. The second half of the sentence, however, after the action, is about Mr. Bumble, who is referred to as the beetle and he in the rest of the sentence and indeed the novel. 
So to start, the matron, quote, stated her intention of screaming, unquote, but was interrupted by, quote, a hasty knocking at the door, unquote, rendering her scream, quote, unnecessary, unquote. She doesn't feel so cozy about kissing the beetle and is upset about it, but gets distracted from her discontent when someone knocks at the door. The main action here is the person knocking, though Dickens also takes pains to note what would have happened if no one had knocked, or the potential action of the matron screaming. The next action is that Mr. Bumble gets far away from the lady as possible, making an excuse for himself to be in her presence by, quote, dusting the wine bottles. Unquote. To end, Dickens mentions the matron's reaction to the main action of the sentence, which is to, quote, demand who was there, unquote, at the door, presumably. So to summarize what we went over, we were looking specifically at the characters involved, the nouns in the sentence, and as well, the verbs in the sentence. Once you get a basic understanding of the verbs and the nouns and what the people are doing in this sentence or the sentences in question, then you can focus on the adjectives and how these people feel about the actions that are being performed. You might take, for example, historical understandings in mind as we did with this uh, understanding of 1800s romanticism. Um, and being romantic in Britain at that time, um, we might also take into consideration what the characters have done before, their feelings to previous similar events, uh, also where the characters are in their character arc. Is the beetle a villain in this uh, scene or is the beetle a victim of impulse? These are all questions that we can start to ask ourselves after we have a basic understanding and are able to piece apart the sentence as we've just done. Keeping watch for Dickens. This is a perfect segue into the next topic, which is keeping watch for Dickens himself within the text. As with many novels of the time, Dickens is the third-person omniscient narrator for Oliver Twist, and most, if not all, of his other fiction, it's definitely not all of his other fiction, but <laughs> he does do a third-person narration for a lot of them. Some books like Great Expectations and David Copperfield have a first-person retrospective narrations, for example, so always look out for which narration style Dickens is using. Short and sweet, it means here in this third-person style that Dickens has a very real presence in the novel and will often talk directly to the reader or give little clues to the reader in the middle of the plot. A good thing is that Dickens, in the middle of the dialogue and elsewhere, of course, will just tell us what the character said in the omniscient voice as opposed to adding the comment to the block of dialogue that just took place, the same thing happens at the end of the sentence we just went through, where instead of the matron having the line of who goes there or who's at the door, Dickens just says what she said. It's a roundabout way of going about the scene, but it's amazingly brilliant the way that he integrates different parts of dialogue in different ways. I might mention that if you knew something about Dickens himself, it would help you out a lot here as well for this tip. 
Knowing about Dickens's call for social justice regarding children, for example, would set you up for having a better understanding about what Dickens writes about orphaned children and bad parenting, for example. And knowing that Dickens wrote in series and not in full novels all at a time may help you understand his chapter endings, for instance, or his sequencing just that much better. Another tip? Use cross-comparisons. We have read half a dozen novels together on the December Dickens series over the past two years, which is a lot of Dickens. It's a lot of Dickens, many thousands of pages worth. But take care not to segment each of these novels into their own little boxes, because there's so much depth in being able to compare these novels, characters, and plots after you've engaged with them. A tip that I have for reading Great Expectations, for example, is to see Oliver in Pip, but also to recognize that Pip is unrestrained in his adult narration, his first-person retrospective narration, that is, in ways that Oliver was not with this third-person retrospective narration. So Pip as an adult writing in retrospect changes the course of the story throughout his narration so that at the end of the story, it's not all about Pip anymore as it was always about Oliver or always about David Copperfield. That's what gives the title Great Expectations such strength. And the final tip, read a lot of classics. My last tip is a little mainstream and kitschy and it relates to the second to last tip, but it is this, read a lot of classics. Look, I set about to read four Dickens novels in four weeks for the first series, two in four weeks for the last series, and two in four weeks again for this new series here. And I will continue on and on with Dickens until we've read and reread all of his books because he's so valuable and he's such a great read. And with my schedule during finals, it would have been impossible if I wasn't already well-equipped to dissect a novel in general by this man. That's not because I'm special and I came out of fourth grade reading classics. It's because over the past many years, I have diligently read any and all classics that I can get my hands on, just out of pure interest to what I was missing, really. The more you read, the easier it is to read and to write, by the way. So if you even have a dime of curiosity about what it's like to say you've read a novel by Charles Dickens, the time to start is now. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from us, there is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website, relevanceofliterature.com, under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes. We also have a couple of open surveys that you can find through the links in the description, so if you have three minutes while you're waiting in line somewhere, we would very much appreciate your feedback on our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, and we'll see you next time.